Well, good morning, everyone. Could I welcome you to this service of worship and to any who may be joining the service through the YouTube link. Let us worship God by singing to his praise from Psalm 99a, page 130 of the Psalter. The Lord reigns from his throne on high. Let all the nations quake. He sits between the cherubim, so let the whole earth shake. Great is the Lord on Zion Hill, exalted over all, upon his great and holy name. Let all the nations call. The King loves truth and equity, established by his might in Jacob. You have done for us all that is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God with us. Let all the world abroad before his footstool worship him. For holy is the Lord. Let us sing these verses. The Lord reigns from his throne on high. The Lord reigns from his throne on transcendent holiness, holy in your righteousness and holy in your grace. Oh, may we be found today acknowledging and bowing down before the holiness of a sovereign God. It prompted praise on the part of the seraphim who beheld the holiness of Almighty God as they went to and fro proclaiming 
that God is indeed holy, 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 that your holiness sets you apart from all your creatures. Grant, O Lord, that we may come into thy presence today with that sense of awe and reverential fear in the knowledge that we are in the presence of our thrice holy God. May we come upon the knees of our heart before thee, acknowledging with thy servant of old that we are of unclean lips, just as thy servant felt when he came before the holiness of God in the vision that was granted to him when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. O Lord, we thank thee that with a holy God there is forgiveness, that with a holy God there is cleansing, that thou hast made provision for sinners to draw near to thee, Grant thy blessing upon us as we reflect on a part of thy truth today. Bless it richly to our hearts. May it reach into our innermost being and may our lives be gripped by the power of the truth so that we come in truth to serve the Christ of God, to be joyous subjects of the sovereign King who reigns supremely over the affairs of men. Although there may be much in our world that is beyond our understanding, much that we find deeply mysterious, yet, O oh Lord, we draw comfort from this fact that the Lord reigns. Grant, most gracious God, that our hope and confidence might be placed today and every day in the Lord who reigns, so that as we come before thee today, we may not be despondent or downcast, but uplifted by the thought that thou art reigning, and that thy will is being performed and that nothing but nothing can thwart the will of the reigning sovereign king, that your will will always win out despite every, every hostility and enmity that is aroused by the forces of darkness in seeking to thwart the will of the reigning sovereign king, we bless thy name that this is so. Grant thy blessing, we pray thee, on each home and family as we are found before thee today. Thou knowest the needs of each and all. Thou knowest those who may be here with heavy burdens, with crushing burdens, Thou knowest those who may be here today looking for a token for good that they belong to those who are indeed the subjects of the sovereign king and who rejoice in his reign. Grant thy blessing upon them. We pray for any who may be mourning the loss of loved ones and who are today having a burden of sorrow as they mourn the passing of those dear to them. We know of some who have that burden, some who came face to face unexpectedly with that, with that burden of sorrow as they came face to face with what perhaps they didn't want to hear as those whom they loved in life, 
were taken unexpectedly from them. Comfort them, we pray thee, with the comfort that alone is able to reach into distraught hearts and lives when death removes a member of a family unexpectedly, as often death comes. We pray thy blessing for those who may be under thine hand in illness, confined to their homes or in hospital care or in residential care. Grant, O Lord, thy blessing on each and all according to their needs and bless those who are providing care for them. We give thee thanks for all who are involved in the care system, doctors and nurses, care assistants, all who provide for those unable to provide for themselves. O grant, O Lord, that we be mindful of those who are involved in the care system, the burdens that they bear, the duties that devolve upon them, the responsibilities that are theirs. Help them to fulfill these responsibilities as they daily carry out their tasks. Help us now as we turn to thy truth. Bless the other section of the congregation and thy servant as he engages in the act of worship in the Gallic language. Grant thy blessing upon them. Uphold and sustain him, we pray thee, in the duties that devolve upon him. And bless all who go forth in thy name, here and to the ends of the earth. Bless, we pray thee, the Slavic gospel members who are carrying out deputation work. We give thee thanks for their commitment, for their zeal, for their enthusiasm and for the encouraging reports that they have brought to us. We pray that thou wouldst bless them today in the particular duties that devolve upon them, wherever they are preaching, the unsearchable riches of Christ, cleanse in the blood. In Jesus' name we ask it with forgiveness of sin. Amen. Let us now read from the New Testament, from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15 and at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Amen, and may he bless to us that reading from his truth. Let us further sing to his praise from Psalm 22, page 26 of the Psalter, at verse 14. And the tune is Rockingham. Apologies to the presenter, I forgot to mention the tune for the first song. Psalm 22, page 26, at verse 14. Like water, I am emptied out, and all my bones are torn apart. My inmost being melts away, and into wax is turned my heart. My strength is like shattered clay, and these verses apply particularly to the Lord Jesus on the cross. And as I fight to draw my breath, my tongue is sticking to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. A pack of dogs encloses me. Their circle round me is complete. I am beset by evil men, and they have pierced my hands and feet. I count the number of my bones. With gloating eyes the people stare. They throw the dice to get my coat. Among themselves my clothes they share. Let us sing these verses. Like water I am emptied out. Like water I am Oh, 
scripture that we read, Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, and we may read again at verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. The Gospel accounts tell us of very strange happenings which coincided with the death of Christ. And one of these that are mentioned is the tearing of the temple veil in two from top to bottom. Three of the Gospel writers refer to it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Both Matthew and Mark associate the tearing of the curtain with the loud voice cry of the Lord Jesus on the cross and his final breath. Some uh, query which temple curtain was torn but I think it is safe to assume that it was the curtain or the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place of the temple. You may remember that the, the holy place was frequented on a daily basis by the duty priests who ministered there. The most holy place was only entered once a year by the, the high priest on the great day of atonement. How do we explain the phenomenon that this curtain was torn from the top to the bottom? No one, no gospel writer refers to anyone with a knife or a scissor trying to tear it in two. It was apparently made of very thick material, not easily torn. And the Gospel writers record that it was torn simultaneously with the moment of the death of Christ at three in the afternoon. On our timekeeping, in Jewish timekeeping, that is the ninth hour, the equivalent of three o'clock in the afternoon. That's when the duty priests would be offering the daily evening sacrifice. And for those ministering priests, it must have been a startling and surprising phenomenon yeah, to witness this taking place, given their familiarity with the Old Testament teaching it may have even filled them with fear and the thought of death now that the most holy place was exposed to their gaze. I doubt that they understood the significance of the event then, 
but they could not doubt that it was not attributable to anything natural. For those with the benefit of New Testament teaching, it was very significant that the temple curtain was torn in two. It signified the new order being ushered in. No longer was there an impediment in drawing near to God. A new and living way had been opened up through the one sacrifice of the Lamb of God, a sacrifice that satisfied the demands and full of divine justice. And the writer in the letter to the Hebrews writes, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, this strange phenomenon could only be verified by a limited number of people initially, the duty priests of that day. And no doubt word would have uh, spread quickly of what took place. There were also other accompanying events of which many were witnesses. There was, we are told, an earthquake. That certainly could be verified by a greater number of people. It took place during the afternoon. Many would probably be aware of the tremor. No information is given as to the severity of that tremor. We're not told if uh, houses were destroyed. But what we are told by Matthew in his account is that the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tearing of the temple curtain is not attributed to the force of the earthquake by any of the gospel writers. They speak first of the tearing of the curtain and then they speak of the earthquake and they tell that the rocks were split. Interestingly, in the original language, uh, the same root word is used to speak uh, of the veil being torn and of the rocks being split. The same power that tore the veil or the curtain, thick as it was in the temple, was also the power that split the rocks. They were torn asunder, and the impression that, that you get is that they were torn like someone, someone might tear a piece of paper. There was also another unusual occurrence. Matthew writes, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So you could say that these three events were not everyday occurrences. They weren't events that you could shut your eyes to and pretend that they did not happen. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, the graves were opened, and bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, notice not all the bodies, bodies of those saints. And notice also in the way in which the writers describe death for those who had been saints. They had fallen asleep, and how very suggestive that is. And that is how the Bible frequently speaks of the death of those who die in Christ. They sleep in Christ, and it is most suggestive. Now, all of these occurrences were designed, I believe, to catch the attention of you know, people at that time. We are told how all these combined events, including the way in which Christ died, affected some. And Mark, in this passage that we read, tells us of one particular individual, 
who I wish to focus on this morning in our reflection. An army officer, a Roman centurion. Mark records for us the assessment that this man made and his assessment is a, an eyewitness statement or account. So who gave this account? What did he see? Secondly, what did he see and hear? Thirdly, what did he say? And fourthly, how does this account speak to us? Who gave it? And the answer to the question is, I don't know. Because the gospel writers do not see fit to disclose his name, to furnish us with details of his background. Obviously, the gospel writers, the Holy Spirit, uh, influencing the gospel writers, didn't consider that that information was really important. And so what we are told about this man is really minimal. He was an army officer in the service of the Roman Empire, probably a Gentile. The fact that he is called a centurion indicates that he was responsible for a hundred soldiers. That's about the total of the scant information that we are given. So he remains unnamed. All we know is that he appears to be in charge of the execution squad overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus and remember two others who were crucified alongside Jesus. And Mark portrays them as watching proceedings. Mark tells us he stood opposite Jesus. In other words, he was able to observe minutely what was taking place, possibly doing so to ensure that no one would seek to intervene and remove Jesus from the cross. I suppose you could say that was part of his duty as an officer on guard duty. But in the overriding mysterious providence of God, he was appointed to this duty. And it seems to me you cannot but marvel at how the Lord uses steps in our providence for our spiritual good without us being aware of how our steps are being directed in a particular way. And I hope we can see that in the life of this man as I develop the lecture. Certainly God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Here is a man fulfilling orders from his superiors. And through the instructions that are given to him and the duties entrusted to him, he comes to formulate a very different opinion of Jesus Christ. Not just a different opinion as to the fact that he is on the cross, but a different opinion as to the identity of this person, Jesus Christ. So who gave this account? An unnamed Gentile, centurion, obeying instructions and on duty at the cross. Secondly, what did he see and hear? And the impression is created by all the gospel writers who, who make mention of this man is that what he saw and heard is linked to his testimony. And it seems to me that there are two aspects to what he saw and heard. First, there is clear, indisputable evidence for some of the things that he saw and heard. But secondly, there are also things that we may speculate he saw and heard, but of which I cannot give 
clear proof from the Bible that he did. And I'd like to deal with the second of these first. John's Gospel tells us that when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, that Judas uh, uh, came along with a, accompanied by a detachment of troops and also others. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there. And the word translated detachment is the word for a unit of soldiers, which could consist of up to 600 soldiers. Commentators are of the view that 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 the number present when Jesus was arrested was not that many, but that there could be up to 200. Was there even that many? It's not easy to determine from what uh, is written. But when they were asked the question, whom are you seeking? And they responded, Jesus of Nazareth, John writes, Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And the thrust of the Bible with the life of Jesus indicates that he veiled his glory when he appeared in this world in true human nature. But in that particular context, there is, as it were, a glimpse of his glory shines through the veil of his humanity. And even such a brief glimpse of his glory is enough to floor the arresting party. It's as if they were paralyzed. And the question I'd like to pose is this, was this centurion among them? Was he struck by the air of authority that emanated from this person? whom they had been sent to arrest. And I don't discount the possibility, but I cannot prove, on the other hand, that he was there. Jesus permitted them to arrest him. He was taken to Annas, the high priest, to Pilate, to Herod, and back again to Pilate, and you know the story. His accuser stating that he, that he claimed to be the Son of God. And from their mockery, they are in total denial as to the identity of this person. They are stating, by the way they treat Jesus, they do not believe for one moment that he is the Son of God. Did this centurion, did he agree with that initial assessment? And again, I have to say, Probably, but I cannot prove it. Jesus was mocked. He was assaulted. They beat him. John writes of how how Jesus was ill-treated by the soldiers and how they mocked his claims. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Was the centurion part of this group? It is possible that he witnessed all of these events, but I cannot produce the evidence from the Bible that he did. So that's the the second thing that we may speculate about that. But the first thing is this. There is clear, indisputable evidence for some of the things that he saw and heard. Matthew, in his gospel narrative, uh, relates, the earth quaked, the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. So, these were some things that he saw and heard. And they resulted in in producing fear in the life of this man. 
Did that indicate that he was fearful of the consequences of what he had done in carrying out his orders? Because it is more than likely that he was responsible for issuing the command to nail Jesus to the cross. He would have witnessed the meek submission of Jesus to this most inhumane action. There is no evidence of of resistance or, or struggle to escape on the part of Jesus. There is no verbal abuse aimed at the soldiers who carried out the act of nailing him to the cross. Because this is one of whom the prophet Isaiah could write hundreds of years beforehand. As he spoke of the suffering servant of Jehovah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So there is Isaiah predicting, with the spirit of prophecy, the silence of the Lamb of God as he comes before those who are sitting in judgment on him and who are ill-treating him. The centurion could not but fail to notice the calm demeanor of Christ in the face of such provocation. He would have heard the mocking taunts of those who surrounded the cross. He would have heard the mocking and the initial remonstration of both of the men who were crucified on either side of Jesus because both of them mocked Jesus initially. And the centurion would be aware of the character of these two men and their reputation. Did the centurion hear the message of marvelous grace addressed to one of the dying thieves? You remember what Jesus said to him? Remember, he had pleaded with Christ, Lord, remember me. It's such a, an embraceive prayer. And it's a prayer that fits every one of us. Lord, remember me. And you remember the response of Christ. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Did Jesus speak it loudly enough for the centurion to hear? It's possible. The centurion would also have seen the thick judgmental darkness that, that covered the sight from, from midday until 3 p.m. He must have wondered about that. He would, have, he, would have, he would have heard the cry of dereliction that, that pierced the thick darkness when Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark in this particular context especially links the testimony of the centurion to his observation of the manner in which Christ died. Mark writes, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then in our text, he goes on to write, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now we know that people respond to the death of Christ on the cross in different ways. If you went round the audience here today and you asked every person here today what is your response to the death of Christ what does it mean for you there would be many different responses I would hope that many would say that the death of Christ means everything to you that the death of Christ is highly significant in your life that the death of Christ means that you are forever thanking the Lord that Christ Jesus came into the world to seek and to save 
that which was lost. It is obvious then that the manner of Christ dying had a profound effect on the opinion of this man as to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. He heard him cry with a loud voice and he saw him breathe his last. Remember, Jesus had been hanging on the cross for six hours, the third hour to the ninth hour. An hour uh, on our clock, nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. He heard Jesus cry with a loud voice. And John, the, uh, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus cried out, it is finished. In the Greek, it's just one word, tetelestai. Did the centurion understand the significance of what Christ said? I can't be sure about that. But I think he would certainly have found it peculiar that a, a weakened, dying person should have the energy to shout with a loud voice. It's not what you normally associate with the act of dying. John tells us that Jesus, bowing his head, gave up his spirit. And it's as if John is is telling us that this was a, a regal act on the part of Jesus as he gave himself to death. Unlike you or I, when our time to die has come, we will be conquered by the power of death. Oh yes, we will fight it as long as we are able. We will struggle against the onset of death. But the power of death will conquer you and me if Christ doesn't come first. And you know, we don't know when that will be or where it will be, do we? We may think we know, but we don't. Just in the last few days, there was a car accident in the Isle of Skye. The parents of the man who was killed in that accident were in my first congregation. They're not in this, they're not alive anymore. Going to work in his car, he never reaches the office. You know, and these things are all food for thought. We don't know when that moment is going to come about in your life or in mine. But here, Jesus gives himself to death. So there's a world of a difference between my dying, your dying, and the death of Christ. The centurion saw and heard what transpired at the cross. He may have even seen and heard what took place from the moment of Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane right up to the cross and beyond. I cannot prove that part. But what he saw and heard had a profound effect on his assessment of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. What did he see and hear? Who gave this account? Thirdly, what did he say? And the question takes us right into the heart of our text. In the light of what he, what he heard and saw under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he speaks in glowing terms of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, many saw and heard what the centurion saw, but it didn't have this effect on them. Many people hear of Jesus Christ, and you may be even here this morning, but until now, Jesus Christ has not had a transforming effect on your life. Luke, in his account, tells us, so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now, Luke's 
record suggests, the centurion was expressing words that, that exonerate the character of Jesus, while both Matthew and Mark's accounts are more a declaration of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. If we look at Luke's record of what is stated by the centurion, you can see how what he says exonerates the character of Jesus. Why do I say this? Well, think about it. For this very good reason, that this form of capital punishment that he was undergoing was reserved for the very worst of crimes. Now, that was true of the two who were being put to death alongside Jesus. So when the centurion states that this was a righteous man, in effect he is stating that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is innocent. As one who had been present, perhaps from the time of his arrest, but certainly present at the cross, he has come to the conclusion that this man has been punished for a crime of which he is innocent. What he saw and heard convinced him that this man is truly righteous. The thief who was brought to faith in Christ and who was given such blessed assurance of where he was going to spend eternity also came to a similar conclusion. We receive, he says to his, uh, uh, his fellow accused, the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion would be in full agreement with that assessment. He had seen enough to convince him that Jesus was innocent. He's a righteous man. What he saw and heard convinced him that Jesus was undeserving of death. And Luke tells us he glorified God. How did he glorify God? Well, I'm going to suggest by merely making the statement that Jesus was a righteous man. He was glorifying God. He was saying the same thing as God says about his own son. You remember the letter to the Romans. Paul speaks of those, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. You see, the statement that the centurion made, it, 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 If I can put it this way, he, it concurs with the assessment of heaven. When Jesus was being baptized at Jordan, remember what we are told, a voice came, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here is one who was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the virgin. And he was righteous. You could say he was righteous before he came into the world. He was righteous from the womb, righteous as a child, righteous as a teenager, righteous as an adult, and throughout all his sufferings, no unrighteousness of any kind can be found in him. And the centurion is convinced on the basis of what he had seen and heard that this person is not on the cross for the sake of any breach of the law. The priests, the scribes, the Pharisees who had condemned him and were gloating in his death were being challenged by the testimony of this centurion. They were putting a righteous man to death. Was there not a danger that this testimony would be carried back to the ears of his superior and ultimately to the governor that an injustice had been done? That justice hadn't been served? Well, you know, I don't know, but I, I get the impression that this centurion didn't care about that. He was basing his assessment on what he had seen and heard. And not only does he, by his testimony, exonerate the character of Jesus, but he goes even further. Truly this man was the Son of God. He is not now justifying the character of Jesus, but he is setting before us the identity of this condemned person on the middle cross. He's not just merely a righteous man. He's the son of God. And you remember how Mark 
begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There would be no good news if Jesus Christ was just a right, a mere man, even a, a mere righteous man. My sins and your sins could never be atoned for by a mere man, even a righteous man, dying in our place. We require a substitute who is both God and man. If this centurion was present in Gethsemane, then he saw his display of authoritative power. In his trials and crucifixion, he would have seen how, how, how nobly he conducted himself. Remember how the Apostle Peter writes of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. The centurion saw Jesus during these six hours on the cross. He saw how disparagingly the chief priest spoke to him, mocking him. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. We love him. For he said, I am the son of God. He saw all of that. It's not improbable. But that the first thought of who Christ was was sown in the garden of Gethsemane. Other thoughts followed as he viewed events of the actual crucifixion. He saw, as it were, heaven itself, bearing witness to what was taking place. He saw the split rocks, the open graves. Did he understand what these things meant? I don't know. But of this, he was convinced. Certainly, this was a righteous man. Truly, this man was the Son of God. That's what he said. What did he see and hear? Who gave this account? Finally, how does that speak to us? What has that to do with us here this morning? What does the testimony of the centurion say to you and me? Well, can we not say this? That we have to reckon with this confession. Everything in the Bible supports and confirms the accuracy of his statement and assessment. And that raises another question. If Christ is righteous, and he is. If Christ is the Son of God, and he is, why is he on the cross, dying as an unrighteous person in the Roman place of sinners? Could God not protect him and deliver him? Could, God not have de could he not have defended himself and saved himself? And the answer to all of these is yes. So why was he there? We cannot pretend to ignore the question, why did he die? Why was he placed on the cross? And the Bible answers the question superbly. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's the biblical answer. Why did he die the cursed death of the cross? It was for sins, not his own sins. He had none. But for your sins and mine. When he went to the cross, he went as the just in place of the unjust. He bore our sins, our pride, our lies, our cheating, our blasphemy, our sinful desires. He died, the just one, for those who were unjust. And the reason that the Bible gives is this, that he might bring us to God. That sets before us that not only was he the sole sacrifice that satisfied the justice of God, but that he was active as priest in bringing sinners to God. He is able to plead the efficacy of the cry of the shed blood within the courts above. Oh, there is much efficacy in the cry of the shed blood within the courts above. Our sins are as a, a huge 
impassable mountain between us and a holy God. We require to have that obstacle removed. And he came over the mountains of our sin. He came as the king of grace into this world. As so well set out by Mark in the beginning of his gospel as he sets before us the heart of Jesus' message. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here is this man, the centurion, a non-Jew, a non-disciple, a Gentile, testifying to the sonship and the righteousness of Jesus. And as far as I can gather, he is the only person praising God at the cross. He glorified God at the cross. And here are we today, thousands of years later. Most of us have heard about Jesus Christ from childhood. We've been taught about his identity and why he died on the cross. Is it true this morning that you do not see your need of Christ to bring you into subjection to God? Is it true that you live as if you do not need the Jesus who died on the cross? Or are you here today? And have you been reflecting on the death of Christ on the cross? Did you come to the same conclusion as the centurion? Are you praising God that Christ came into the world, that he was crucified, the just in the room of the unjust? Or does that leave you totally unmoved, uncaring? Well, it didn't leave this man, this hardened soldier. It made a deep, indelible impression on his life. We don't know anything more about him. And after, after these times. But what we do know is this. His testimony still rings out as he assures us, truly this man was the Son of God. What place does the Son of God have in our lives this morning? Let us pray. O eternal God, we thank Thee that the Son of God came into this world in true human form, that he suffered, that he died, and that he rose again, that he is at the right hand above, a prince and a savior. O oh, grant, eternal one, that we might share with the centurion the conviction that this was the Son of God, and as the Son of God, that we look to him and to him alone for salvation. And the glory shall be thine. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let us conclude by singing to God's praise from Psalm 149, page 450 of the Psalter. And the tune is Gainsborough. Psalm 149, page 450 of the Psalter. Praise ye the Lord, and to him sing a new song, and his praise in the assembly of his saints, in sweet psalms do ye raise. Let Israel in his maker joy, and to him praises sing. Let all that Zion's children are be joyful in their king. All oh, let them unto his great name give praises in the dance. Let them with timbrel and with harp in songs his praise advance. For God doth pleasure take in those that his own people be, and he with his salvation the meek will beautify. In his glory excellent, let all his saints rejoice. 
let them to him upon their beds aloud lift up their voice. Let us sing these verses. Praise ye the Lord. and communion of the Holy Spirit rest on and abide with you all now and forever. Amen. <laughs>